pastors here on staff, um, and it is a joy to be with you this morning, um, even though you're a shiny reflection. Uh, I love the fact that we get to gather in person uh, to praise our Lord and Savior. Um, if you're new to the branch, um, or even if you have been at the branch for a while, uh, you might not know, but this Wednesday um, is actually the branch's eighth birthday. Uh, we've been in Corvallis preaching the gospel for eight years. Um, and so I thought it fitting as, as I kind of pray to intro our time together uh, to, to truly praise God for the branch and the, this last eight years of ministry uh, that we've seen God doing in this city. So may you join me as we pray. Father God, we come before you truly in praise and adoration. Lord God, that you have chosen a people for yourself. And Lord, that you're designed for that people, you're designed for how we are to reach the world, how the nations are to hear of your goodness and your grace is through the local church. And God, we rejoice for eight years ago, Lord, for the planting of the branch. The reality is, as I look out into this room, Lord, very few of us were here eight years ago. Very, very few. And yet we get to rejoice that we are stepping into the feet of those before us and continuing on to proclaim your gospel. Lord God, we praise you for the work that has been done in this city, not just in the branch, but in the churches at large. Knowing God, in the early 2000s, there was a survey or a study that came out and Benton County was the least church county in the whole U.S. And yet, God, today we look out and we rejoice at the many churches, the branch being one of them, that weekly, faithfully preaches your gospel message. Lord God, I think of those that laid a gospel foundation for us and yet have, have moved on. And God, I thank you for Stephen Brucker, um, God, who was one of the founding pastors and is now at Chapel Church um, up in Tacoma, Washington. God, we praise you for his faithfulness. While he was here, Lord, we praise you for his faithfulness to this day. And God, we pray for him this morning as he preaches your gospel to his people, Lord. May the meditations of his heart and the words of his mouth be pleasing to you. And Lord God, we thank you for Josh Howick, who left just a little over a year ago. Um, the, the planting pastor, God. And, and his heart for you and his heart for the city. His heart ultimately for Oregon State, Lord, is saying we want to see this campus reached. We want to see students fall in love with Jesus. Because, God, we want to see the world fall in love with you. And the beauty is our campus right here in our back door is really the roadway to the nations, Lord, as we have over 3,000 international students that we get to have the opportunity to share with. And, Lord, I thank you for the foundation that Josh laid that we get to play upon. And, Lord, I pray for him this morning as he's preaching at Gresham Bible. Lord, I pray that you bless his congregation with, with his leadership, Lord, and with his, with his words as they come from your scripture. Lord God, we, we praise you for this church. We praise you for the community, Lord, and if we've been here for any length of time, we recognize our community is kind of an ever-flowing, people in for a season and people out. And yet, God, we rejoice that even in the midst of the sorrows of saying goodbye time and time again, we get to rejoice that we're sending them out to be part of other churches, to go to other nations. For the sake of the gospel moving forward, Lord, we, in the midst of even sorrow and weeping, can rejoice that your gospel is going forth, that there's no stopping of your good news. 
And Lord God, as I pray that as we continue in our series today on unity and diversity, Lord, that you will speak through me. Lord, that the meditations of my heart and the, and the words of my mouth will be honoring to you. Lord, may we leave changed and empowered people because of your gospel. In your name, amen. So one may argue that we are in one of the most divisive times in our history. I mean, the schisms between the left and the right are getting larger and larger. We have more keyboard warriors than ever using our fingers to spew hurtful and even hateful rhetoric. I mean, genuine discourse on a topic seems like a fantasy nowadays because simply disagreeing with somebody means that you disagree with the very core and essence of that individual. And so a series on unity and diversity for some can be encouraging to be like, where are we headed with this? But then for others, you're left realistically asking, is this even possible? Can we be united for Christ? Because I don't see it. The divide just feels too great. For sadly, the church universal and even local congregations are not exempt from this division. Social psychologist Christina Cleveland, she elaborates on this reality in, in the opening chapter of her book titled Disunity in Christ, where she recounts her internal dialogue about this guy in her church. This is what she says. I wish I could say this wasn't the case, but everything about Ben bugged me. From his inflexible and preachy conservatism to his career as an engineer who designs nuclear warheads. I mean, seriously? To his dorky Hawaiian print button-downs, alas, perhaps his greatest offense. Anyways, there I was riding through Colorado lamenting the fact that Ben was part of my life and plotting ways to avoid interacting with him ever again. And suddenly, I was confronted with the idea that Ben was going to be in heaven with me for all eternity, and I would never, ever be rid of him. Suddenly, the idea of frolicking on the streets of gold seemed less enticing, but that's okay. I quickly reassured myself, heaven is going to be a big, big place. And she continues on to discuss how quick we are to label one another the right Christian and the wrong Christian. The right Christian has one view on politics, where the wrong Christian has another. The right Christian has a right view on social justice, while the wrong Christian has another. A right theological framework, a right view on spiritual gifts, a right view on environmental care, a right view on the church, while the wrong Christian has another. The list could go on and on and on. And yet we realize that when we make our list, the right Christian looks a lot like us. And the wrong Christian looks a lot like that person that's really annoying in your life. Yet the thing is, your right Christian is realistically somebody's wrong Christian. And vice versa, your wrong Christian is realistically somebody's right Christian. And in reality, the right Christian and the wrong Christian is part of our church, is part of our membership, is potentially sitting in front of you or behind you this morning. 
So we ask the question, is unity possible? Where we are so prone to say no, the Bible unequivocally says yes. Martin Luther once said that the word of God often meets us as an adversary. And I believe it's in topics like unity and diversity where we find the truth of that. For so often, Scripture actually opposes the lies that we have so easily bought into. You see, we need to remember from the onset that this divide is never too great for Christ. I mean, God took the greatest divide ever known to mankind, depraved humanity, separated from the one and only holy God, and he bridged the way through his son. Jesus the Christ. So if Christ, who took our sin, who took our separation from God and made us actually right with a glorious God, he can unite his people. With Christ, unity is possible. You see, the Bible is not simply wishful thinking. It's the very word of God. And amongst it, we see his vision for unity among his people. Unity within the church is essential. And I believe our unity in diversity is one of the most powerful evangelistic tools we have in our ever-growing, divisive, watching world. For unity powerfully points to the Lord. And ultimately, our unity is rooted in, in how we view ourselves and how we view each other. In Romans 12, as Paul elaborates on what it means to be a member of Christ's body, he informs us on these views. Romans 12, 3 through 8 states, For by the grace given to me, I, Paul, say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God had assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and our serving, the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exalts, I mean exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. If we could boil this down to one main thrust which will be on the screen behind us. As members of the Christ's body, our posture is humility, unity, and intentionality. And we're going to see how he kind of walks through this as he's taking us bit by bit and saying, hey, this is how you are to view fill in the blank. And so we're going to walk through three different categories of how we view ourselves in verse 3, how we view one another in verses 4 and 5, and then lastly, how we view our membership. In verses 6 through 8, how we view this idea of being part of the body. So verse 3, how we view ourselves. Again, Paul says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So how are we to view ourselves? He makes two statements. He says, one, don't think too highly of yourself. And two, within that view, be sober-minded. So ultimately, he's driving home the call 
for humility. You see, this sober-minded, this sober thinking urges a true and objective estimate of who we are. When we're sober, we can actually have a clear and logical understanding. And again, this beautifully flows out of the two verses prior to verse 3. As Romans 12, 2 is really calling us to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Ultimately, he's saying it's aligning yourself to the gospel that is going to renew your mind, that is going to give you clarity. So you're no longer confused by the ways and the conforming of the world, but rather the gospel is what clarifies. And we might ask the question, well, why, why does he start with humility? And I think we, we all know the answer. Because we're so prone to be proud. Paul recognizes that as humans, our first tendency is not humility. I mean, we go back to Genesis, the very beginning, and our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned out of a desire to be like God. Pride was part of the fall, and our fight against humility runs deep. See, the antithesis of humility, pride, manifests itself, I think, in primarily two different juxtaposing ways. Oftentimes, we either view ourselves as this super-Christian, or we view ourselves in the other category of kind of the sucky Christian. And the super-Christian is the mindset, you know what? If Jesus was here today, shoot, dude, he'd be lucky that I'm on his team. I'd probably be one of the 12, honestly. And like Peter would look silly in comparison to me. He needs me on his team. He's lucky to have my theological knowledge, my evangelistic skill, the rhetoric, my attractive personality, the list goes on. We're super in our own eyes. Yet you have the opposite side of the person that's, the, 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 oh, I'm a sucky Christian. I don't know if God can use me. I'm worthless. I'm too far gone. I fail time and time again. And just when I think I got back up, I fall once more. You see, at first glance, it might not feel like it. But both of these end up being manifestations of pride. Because at the end of the day, both individuals are thinking too much of themselves. Whether you think, I don't need God, or I'm unusable by God, I am the focus. Yet the Christian life calls us to shift from I to he. When we think about the, the movement of the he is greater than I stickers, that's, that's the heart of the Christian life. Ultimately, in both of these mindsets, Paul's nicely saying, get over yourself. Either you're not that big of a deal, or guess what? You're not as low as you think you are. He's saying swap out the lens in which you're viewing this world. And to have a right view of ourselves, we have to have the right tools of measurement. And so the measure of faith Paul speaks of here in verse 3 refers to the faith held in common by all Christians. The measure of faith is their faith in the gospel. The driving force is to measure yourself in light of the gospel. The gospel is what binds us and the gospel is what unites us. He exhorts us to measure ourselves by this same standard. 
Ultimately saying, hey, use the same yardstick, everybody. And then you can actually have clarity. You can actually have a sober mind. Yet so often one of us has a yardstick, one of us has a meter stick. It might feel similar at the beginning, but as time goes on, we see the divide grows and grows and grows. He's ultimately saying to get over your to get over yourself, to have a sober view of oneself. Look to the gospel. Because it is the gospel that informs us who we truly are. Our Lord and Savior showed us what true humility is. In Philippians 2, after we're called to be of the same mind, of the same love, of the same heart, he calls us to embrace the humility of Christ. Where he says, who, this is Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the gospel is the great equalizer. Because scripture tells us that apart from Christ, these are all words from Romans, apart from Christ, you were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, Apart from Christ, we were gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient, foolish, faithfulness or faithlessness, heartless, ruthless. Ultimately, we were dead in our sins apart from Christ. And yet through faith in Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Through faith in Christ, you have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And in Christ, you are free from the law of sin and death, free from condemnation, born of God, holy and blameless, at peace with God. Ultimately, you are alive in Christ. The humbling equalizer of the gospel comes from the fact that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, dead in our trespasses, but alive in Christ. We were justified, made right through Christ and through Christ alone. See, the gospel ultimately humbles us from beginning to end. From rags to riches, it was Christ. So what do we have to boast in? What do we have to be proud in? Ultimately, all I can say is look at all the sin and junk in my life that I brought to the foot of the cross. Hence the powerful words of Paul, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So aligning ourselves to the right understanding of the gospel provides clarity to how we are to view ourselves. I mean, think of probably one of the many videos you've seen over the last probably five years or so of someone who's colorblind. And for the first time, they're receiving those glasses that they can put on that actually allow them to see color. It's usually like a young little boy or an old man who's getting to put it on. And, and for the first time in their life, they're getting to see the beauty and the complexities of the colors of the leaves as they're changing in fall, to the green of the grass, to the various hues of the rainbow. You see, their life is forever changed. And yet their physical world is not actually changed at all. 
You see, the rainbow always had those hues of color. The leaves always had those varying shades as they fell off a tree and slowly decayed. The grass was always that green. Yet it's the perspective. It's those glasses, those lenses that actually change how they see the world that magnifies the beauty of it. And in the same way, Paul is calling us to put on these glasses of gospel humility. And we'll see that the, the person in the mirror, the person in our, in our church, doesn't necessarily change. But how we see them changes because of our humility. See, humility is a humility rooted in Christ and his gospel. It radically changes our view. So no longer is there the super Christian where Jesus is lucky that I'm on their team or the sucky Christian that somehow you're like, I just slid in the back door and I don't even know if Jesus saw me. But rather they're simply humble Christians forever transformed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. A right view of ourselves is informative and paramount into how we view one another. Rooted in humility, we are able to appropriately and accurately view one another. And this is ultimately how Paul follows his logic. That he says, okay, from humility, it leads to unity. So that we can actually understand how we are to view one another. <clears throat> in verses 4 and 5, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So ultimately, this is, this is unity and diversity on full display. When you are one in the body of Christ, unity, and yet you are many when it comes to the diversity of gifts, the diversity of members. Saying though we are members and we have differing functions, we all come together to make the collective, cohesive body of Christ. Paul continues his critique on pride as it relates to giftings within the church. You see, he's ultimately emphasizing that each member has differing functions, but that doesn't change their value to Christ. That doesn't change their importance within this collective body. I mean, think of a football team. You've got 11 positions on defense and 11 positions on offense. One team consisting of at least 22 individuals. And their individual roles are essential for the overall success and well-being of the team. And so some of us, when we take this analogy, we think, hey, you know what? I'm the quarterback. I probably get paid the most. I got the most jerseys sold. It's essential that I'm on this team. I'm the most important. Or you might think, hey, I'm the wide receiver. You know what? I've got the most receptions on the year as well as the most touchdown catches. Therefore, I'm the most important. Or the linebacker who leads the team in tackles and sacks. And as the saying goes, defense wins games. So I am the most important. Yet, yet Paul's ultimately saying that regardless of how important you individually are, the diversity of roles on the team is actually what's essential for health and vitality. To continue this illustration, just think if of the 22 players, every player on your team was a quarterback. Every player on your team 
was a running back. Every player on your team was a kicker. You're not going to win. You're going to fail. Seeing that it's, it's the diversity within it that is essential for the church being the church, for the football team being a football team that is effective. Ultimately, our corporate identity is more important than our individual identity. Unity needs to win the day. Jonathan Lehman drives home this point in, in his book, Let the Nations Rage, where he states, when you become a Christian, your identity radically changes. And you gain a new citizenship. Suddenly, the most important thing about you is not your gender, who your parents are, where you are from, how much money you have, what color your skin is, your nationality, your intelligence or beauty, whether you are married or anything else that humans ordinarily use to identify one another. The most important thing about you is that you are united to Christ through the new covenant and made a citizen of his kingdom. You are a part of the collective body of Christ. And yet, if, if you know your Bible, you recognize that Romans 12 is not the only place in which Paul uses this language of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, he actually elaborates on this idea of the body even more robustly. And in 14 through 20 of, Rome, of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose if all were a single body, where would the body be? As it were, there are many parts, yet one body. See, through this, as we look at the body of Christ, we're seeing there's this diversity, and yet there's also this, this individual element where he's saying, hey, as part of the body, every member matters. Not only that, God was purposeful in your membership. I mean, look at that language. Each one of you was chosen by God for his body. Each of you arranged where you were for a reason. And we know our God does not make mistakes. See, this is the beauty of the body imagery. For whether you think you're the heart of the body or the lungs or the hands or the feet or the pancreas, the list goes on. You play a vital role in the body of Christ. You know, as I thought about body imagery, the first thing that popped in my head was thinking of the big toe. And you know what? That might not be the most beautiful feature on your body. And if you look at my big toes, you probably think that is the ugliest feature on your body. Yet what's so interesting is that though it might be ugly on my body, it is essential for bearing the weight of my body and maintaining balance. Every member in the body has a specific role and is essential for the overall health. See, as a Christian, you belong to the body. There's no way of getting around that. And so if we want to have a unified view of one another, 
think there's kind of two steps we can take. Number one, we need to fight against our individualistic impulses. And two, it kind of carries over out of that. We need to get to know the body. So first, we need to fight against our individualistic impulses. Because our culture is ultimately telling us, hey, it's all about me. My choice, my decision, me, me, me. Truth is relative. So whatever I think is right is going to be the new status quo. And culture so easily has saturated itself into our church. Yet we see, though Paul acknowledges the individual, it's ultimately his emphasis on how the individual is part of the body, part of the membership that actually matters. You see, we're so prone to forget that the majority of letters written in the New Testament were not written to individuals, but were written to churches. The one another commands of Scripture cannot be lived out in isolation. I mean, even this language of a personal relationship with God is not actually present. That language is not present in the Bible. But rather, more often than not, especially in the New Testament, we see a person is saved into a community. They're saved into the body of Christ. They're saved into the family of God. This is a call to embed yourself into the body. Which ultimately shows that inherently there is a need for one another to function effectively and appropriately. We can't truly be the best church we can be if we're not actually engaging with one another. You need the body and the body needs you. And secondly, out of that, we see that we need to know the body. We need to know one another within our very church, within the universal church. See, that means getting to know those that potentially differ than us, those that are on the other side. I think we're so prone to compartmentalize ourselves and kind of stay within our safety bubbles where we can be content and calm and not push. So everybody kind of looks and thinks and acts similar to us. I mean, all the fingers stay together. All the toes stay together. The ears, the eyes, the mouth, the nose, every feature of the face is like, we're going to form a group. College students form a bubble. All parachurch organizations form a bubble. The young Parents with kids form a bubble. All the theologically rigorous form a bubble. And all of a sudden, as we step into our facility, all we see is a bunch of different bubbles around. To get to know the body, we have to go around and kind of poke those bubbles. See, we're actually neglecting the body when we form all these little niche groups. We're neglecting to get to know those that are different than us. Those who can actually help us grow. And in reality, these differences that often are the things that kind of shy us away from somebody are more often than not actually perceived rather than actualized because we've never actually engaged in a conversation about it. So the question is, are we willing to engage with the wrong Christians in our life that are part of our body? Do we look for what unifies us before we look for what we potentially disagree about? Or I think of last week's sermon on conscience. Are we taking these third-level issues, these kind of discuss and decide for issues, and elevating them 
to first level issues to saying, hey, if you don't agree with me about this specific thing, we're done. There's no need to get to know you. Do we engage with people that have differing views than us? I feel like in our divisive age, we're so prone to take something that somebody has said, and then because of what they said, we categorize them into 15 different boxes. Like you said that, so obviously you believe this, 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 this. The list goes on. And yet at the end of the day, those are just assumptions at best. I mean, all you have to do is scroll through your Facebook for more than a minute or two, and you see people doing that, or you yourself see just how prone you are to categorize and compartmentalize people. Yet this is a call to step out of that. And again, humility plays into this as we look at the body and say, I need to get to know those that even I might disagree with, those that might differ than me, differ, because they are part of the body. They matter. They have a role. God selected them to be part of this body for a reason. And who am I to say otherwise? See, if every member of the body is there by God's design, we should want to know that member. We should want to know what makes them tick, the essential and unique nature of them. Uh, the Puritan preacher and author Thomas Watson said, a humble Christian studies his own infirmities and another's excellencies. And this is really a call to get to know the body by, by looking for the excellencies of one another, striving to find out those on the other side, what they actually think, believe, what actually functions, and then seeing how are we unified. Even in the midst of differing opinions, Christ, the gospel, is what brings us together. See, as we develop a humble view of ourself, and as we strive for unity, as we get to know the dynamic body of Christ, we best understand how we are to use our gifts. We understand how we are to view our membership. Verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given you, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I mean, as Paul's opening words of verse 6 make clear, as a member of Christ's body, you have gifts. There is no giftless Christian that does not exist. And yet it's important to note on the onset that, that this list he gives is not an exhaustive list. We see a different list in 1 Corinthians 12, and we see a different list in Ephesians 4. So rather than being like, I have to fit into one of these five or six categories, he's broadly showing the different types of gifts that will be present within the church. Oh, and did you catch that? That these gifts, he says, according to the grace given us. These gifts are a grace of God. If you thought you'd done something to earn them, if you thought it gave you reason to boast, think again. Rather, it's grace upon grace upon grace. It is unmerited. It is an absolutely amazing gift of the Lord. And, and what is his exhortation? What is he calling us to do? 
Use your gifts. Once again, we see unity in diversity. It's the diversity of gifts and yet the unity in working together for the building up of one another, the building up of his church. This is what makes the church the church. Yet Paul doesn't just simply call us to use our gifts. He's saying to be intentional and appropriate in our usage. If these gifts are not used for the building up of the church to make the body function as it ought to, then we're not using it the right way. He's saying this isn't for self-aggrandizement, but it's in accordance with the true nature of being the church. In a sense, what Paul's saying is he's like, don't focus on being something that you're not. Don't focus on trying to do something that you can't. But rather focus on who you are and what you can do and embrace that and live that out in the local church where the body is on full display. And if you're here today and you're thinking, ah, I don't have any idea what my gifts are. Do I, do I have any? Well, yes, you do. The scripture makes it clear. But one of the best ways to actually understand what your giftings may be is to actually embed yourself into the life of the church. The more you engage with the people of God, the more you're involved in the body, the more you understand the role you have to play. The more you understand the significance of you within the collective body, the more you understand how you can be diverse and yet unified in purpose. You see, as you get involved with the people of God, through your own self-assessment and through relationships with others, these gifts that are a grace from the Lord will become evident. God so often uses his people to speak to his people. So get to know the people in this room with you this very day. Get to know the local body and ask them, hey, what do you think my gifts are? And then pursue that. Find out ways to serve. And this is a unique season of serving within our church because it's a lot less than it used to be. But there's still ways in which we can embody what it means to be the body and, and serve one another well. You see, a humble people united in our diversity, intentionally using our gifts for the building up of the church. That's what the vision is. And that vision actualized produces an outpouring of love. The love of God on full display for the watching world. I don't think it's any coincidence that Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 13 are followed up with both sections talking about love. 1 Corinthians 12 is followed by 13, which is this amazing epic poem of the love is kind, love is patient, it does not envy, it does not boast. Which again, we see flowing out of being the body and using our gifts. And Romans 12 is, is followed up with a call to love genuinely with affection, calling us to be who we actually are. And see, when it comes to unity and diversity, people just want to say it's a pipe dream. The right Christian, the wrong Christian mindset just feels too ingrained in our Christian culture. This vision feels too hard. The chasm too wide. The tendency is to just want to throw in the towel. But we see this is a defeatist mindset. 
not a biblical mindset. It does not align to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ, he took us who were dead and made us alive. He took us that were completely divided and united us. And you know, we, we maybe can't change the global church overnight. But we can start with ourselves. We can start with the branch. You see, the church is God's plan A for reaching the world. And there is no plan B. If God hasn't given up on us, we better not give up either. May we strive to be a people who are humble in our hearts, united in our diversity, and intentional in our purpose for the glory of God and the growth of his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Rejoicing for your scripture. Rejoicing, Lord, that when we're tired, when we feel worn out, when we look at the world and, and wonder, you give us answers and comfort to our questions and our wondering. Lord God, we rejoice that through the gospel we see that unity is possible. Through the gospel we see truly, Lord, that the many have become one, united with you through you. And Lord God, may we leave today encouraged to take steps towards unity within this very church. It might feel daunting outside these walls, but may we start within this very core to be on a small scale, a united body, though diverse, that we may be a powerful representation of you to the watching world. Lord God, we thank you for your son in whom we have life and in whom we have been united with you and with one another. It's in your name we pray. Amen.